Joie. I'm the campus minister um, here with RUF. Happy Mardi Gras. Yeah, Mardi Gras. That's why I'm wearing a purple sweater, because it's Mardi Gras. Um, so our son Leo, he has the flu. He finally got to our house. And the fever broke, broke this morning, so he's, he's on the recovery. But in the like, delirium of the flu, he was asking, Dad, tell me a fiction story. Dad, tell me a nonfiction story. And he's got these big kindergarten words now. And um, so the nonfiction story I told him was, uh, I was like, oh, I'll tell him a story about Mardi Gras. So Mardi Gras, my freshman year, at two, I went to Tulane in New Orleans. And we, um, for whatever reason, we, oh, I was... I was pledging a fraternity, so I had to do this. But we drove to this bayou and caught a baby alligator and, um, and put duct tape on its mouth so it wouldn't bite us. And I fell asleep with this alligator in the back of the car and, um, and got back to the house. And I've got this – I don't know if it made it into the slideshow. There's a picture floating around with me holding a baby alligator. And, but I tell the story to Leo and Mary Landon. And so Mary Landon's – she doesn't have a lot of people to tell because she's stuck in our house. But telling all of us over and over again that daddy slept with an alligator – and I had to keep telling her, no, I didn't sleep with an alligator. I just I fell, I fell asleep with an alligator in my arms, the sweet baby alligator. All right, well, anyways, that story is neither here nor there. I just tell it. Um, I just got started, started thinking about college, um, and these, this flood of stories from college came back. And um, for me, uh, college was a real roller coaster, uh, real up and down. And all throughout college, I wrestled with this question. I wrestled with the question, what are Christians for? Um, I was a Christian when I came to college and um, was just all over the place and um, always was, was, was plagued with this question. What are Christians for? What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? And if, you, um, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've spent any time around Christians, you've probably picked up two things about Christians. Um, first, as Christians, we talk a lot about salvation. Uh, we read the Bible, we read our own lives in light of the Bible, um, right, the story of God's good creation, that he's made all things good, he's made humans in his image, um, and the story of sin, that sin has entered the world and has, um, has marred God's creation, it's brought death and fear and sadness and shame and guilt into the world, and, but that sin and death aren't the end of the story, but that God has sent his son Jesus into the world uh, to redeem all things, that in his death and resurrection and his ascension from the dead, or resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven, Jesus has done this great work of, of healing all that is broken with this world. Um, and there's this great promise of salvation, that Jesus will return to make all things new. Um, and as Christians, we, we talk about this a lot. We talk about salvation. And also, if you spend any time around Christians, especially um, evangelical Christians, you've probably picked up that we feel guilty a lot. Um, Right, our, our Bible tells the story of salvation from sin and salvation from death and salvation from shame and guilt. And yet, if you've spent any bit of time talking to a Christian, especially a, a young evangelical Christian, you might pick up that there's this strange persistence of guilt. Maybe not. Um, but I'd wager that a lot of you know what I'm talking about, this, this guilt. Now, some guilt's really good. Um, it's good and right for me to feel guilty when I sin against God and I sin against my neighbor. That guilt shows that I'm not a sociopath because I actually feel empathy for another person. Um, that I understand that my actions have consequences. That I live in a moral universe. And that guilt, back to the first point, that guilt has an answer in Jesus. First John says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you feel guilt because of sin, go to Jesus, confess your sins, experience his cleansing. But there's another type of guilt. 
A guilt that when named, it sounds something like this. Maybe you've heard it. I just don't feel like I'm doing enough for Jesus. Or I'm not sure what I should be doing for Jesus. It's a guilt with, that's filled with shoulds and oughts. Um, and this feeling, I guess we're calling it guilt, reveals perhaps that we have a misunderstanding about the first point. about misunderstanding about salvation. Namely this question. What is Christian salvation for? What am I supposed to do now that I'm saved? What's next? What am I to do now that I've received mercy from God? Um, why doesn't... I remember wondering this question. Maybe this is a question you have if you're a Christian. Why, why doesn't God just whisk me off to heaven um, now that I, I know him? Um, what's next? What am I supposed to be doing? Or if you're not a Christian and you're listening, um, maybe you have this question too. What are Christians for? Um, why? That's a great question. What are Christians for? So what we're doing this semester is we're reading Jonah together. And my hope is that as we read together tonight, we might start to get an answer to this question. Um, If this is your first time with us this semester, just to orient you to the book of Jonah. Jonah is an Old Testament um, book. uh, Jonah was a prophet in the 8th century. And God comes to Jonah and speaks to Jonah and says, Go and preach my gospel to Nineveh. Tell them who I am and um, call them to repent of their evil. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which was the greatest empire in the world's modern-day Iraq. They were enemies of of Israel. Um, And so Jonah's response when he hears God's audible voice is he runs. He runs in the opposite direction. Why does he do this? Perhaps it's fear. Um, We know that it's it's racism, that he doesn't want God's grace to go to people who aren't Jewish. Um, He doesn't believe the message that he's being called to proclaim. He doesn't believe God's grace for himself. So he actually gets on a boat and he goes to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction. He goes to modern-day Spain to flee from God's presence. And then God sends a storm, and Jonah's on this boat with some sailors, and he agrees to be thrown overboard um, so the storm can stop. And then Jonah, as we saw last week, he goes down to the bottom of the sea, and when he hits rock bottom, when he can't go any lower, it's there at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea that God rescues him. He sends a big fish to swallow him and to save him from rotting away on the ocean floor. And then Jonah gets it. And here at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, he gets it. He gets God's grace. He finally gets that God's grace is not something that you earn or merit or achieve. God's love isn't something you have to work for. People don't have to be worthy of it. Jonah learns that you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And that you're never so good that you are beyond the, beyond the need of God's grace. And once Jonah gets it, once he understands God's grace deep in his bones, deep in the bottom of that sea... The Lord speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah up on dry ground. And that's where we are. Um, The passage is printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along here. Um, I'm going to read for us the end of chapter 2 through uh, chapter 3. This is uh, Jonah. Um, This is God's word for us tonight. He gives it to us in love. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Um, So what are Christians for? There's a lot of different ways we can answer that question. Tonight from Jonah, I want us to see this. I want us to see that Christians exist to participate in the compassion of God. Christians exist to participate in the compassion of God. And they do this by going, by pushing back the darkness, and by participating in salvation. So first, by going. Um, Chapter 3 starts just like the beginning of chapter 1. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. The Lord has a message for Jonah to proclaim to Nineveh. But this time, Jonah obeys. And then the action just starts moving. We see all these action verbs. Arise, go, call out. He arose, he went, he began to go, he called out. These verbs just start coming. What we see is the first thing Jonah does when he hears from the Lord is he goes. God calls him and he goes. And he goes to Nineveh. We're told it's a great city. It takes three days to walk around. Jonah goes one day into the city, right into the middle of it. Now I want you to imagine with me what this would have been like for Jonah. He's a foreigner. He's an enemy of the city. And he enters into it. He goes into the heart of the city. He doesn't stand far off on a hill, but he walks the streets, preaching his message all the way into the center. He goes where he's sent. And that's what God's people do. They go where they're sent. We see this all over the Bible. This is the story of God's people. They're always on the move. They're always journeying together. And we see this most clearly in Jesus. Jesus, who um, we're told, who from all eternity dwelt with God the Father and God the Spirit in perfect love. He was sent. He was sent into our world, into the womb of Mary to be born into the world. He was sent in his incarnation into our lives. Now, why? This is because God, in response to our sin, did not stand off at a distance, but he sent his son into our world, into the mess of our world, born into this world to die the death that we deserve and to be raised to newness of life. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he sends people out. This is what God is doing with Jonah. He's sending him in to the center of Nineveh, bearing God's message. And with any city, um, in any modern city, which have been like Nineveh, there are, there are pockets of the city that he would probably enjoy walking through and parts which he probably would want to avoid. There's probably parts of Nineveh that were scary at night, parts that were intimidating during the day, um, parts that he wanted to avoid because he was intimidated by it, by the wealth and the power, the intellect, maybe parts that he was scared to enter because of the poverty, the filth, the danger. But he goes. He went. He went to the city bearing God's message. And he sends you, he sends you out um, into the lives of your neighbors. And if you're a Christian, here's the thing. God has already sent you. This is part of your identity as a Christian. You are a sent one. You don't wait to be sent. You are already sent. You're here. God has sent you to Wake Forest. And after you graduate, he will send you out into the world. So a question for you. Where on this campus do you refuse to go? What parts of this campus scare you? What parts intimidate you? Where do you avoid going? What people would you rather not interact with? Who do you avoid because of their ethnicity, their wealth, their poverty, their lifestyle? 
Another way of saying this, I've got a friend who's a pastor in Silicon Valley, and he says that one of the values of his church, and they say this together this church, is no hot tubs. No hot tubs in our church. Okay, what does he mean by this? He says hot tubs is one of the, a hot tub is one of the best analogies for how Silicon Valley views community and friendship. Time out there is so limited and precious that once you find something that's working socially, you hold on to it for dear life and you don't mess with it. There's no concept for making room for others. There's no concept of, of spreading joy through relationships. Um, because of this, social connections and friendships become highly self-centered, become mercenary and stunted over time. He says there's this incredible poverty of community in Silicon Valley. And so what they say to each other over and over again in their church is there are no hot tubs in our church. Because they live in a place that is starving for real connection, starving for real friendships, and they're convinced that Christians are sent people to be sent into the world with, um, with the truth of the gospel and, and connecting people to God. So the question for you, where are you not making room for others? Where are your friendships self-centered? Where in your life at Wake are you still sitting on that beach um, like Jonah and not going? Where is God calling you to enter into someone else's life, into someone else's space, Instead of the hot tub of Christian comfort that you've built for you and your friends. So Christians exist to participate in the compassion of God by going and by pushing back the darkness. So when Jonah goes to Nineveh, we read in verse 2 that God tells him to call out against it. So why? Why is, God, why is Jonah calling out against Nineveh? It's because the city is evil. We see this in what we read. This is the beginning of the book that the, the evil of, of Nineveh comes up before God. And Nineveh was known for their evil. They were known for their wickedness. Um, archaeologists have shown that Nineveh was known for cutting off the noses of their enemies and literally skinning their enemies alive. And so Jonah is sent to call out against their evil, to call out against their sin. And this is the story of the Bible, that God hates sin and he calls out against it. Spend any time in the pages of the Bible, you'll find yourself on the hook You'll find yourself on the hook for the things that you love that aren't God and for the things that you think about that don't please Him and the things that you do that disobey the law of love. Why? Like, why does God care so much about sin? It's because sin is cosmic treason. It's, it's treason against God who is the king of the universe. It's proclaiming not thy will but my will be done. When in thought and word and deed we say along with the rest of humanity, not thy will but my will be done. And God hates sin because sin destroys everything that is beautiful that he has created. Sin is a direct attack on God and his good purposes for the world. And like Jonah, the call of the church is to call it against sin. To name it and to call out against it wherever we see it. Now I know this is hard for some of us to hear. Um, In your context, in your day-to-day, truth is contested. It It is almost impossible to make any sort of claim on truth. Right, to have any sort of fixed definition of good or evil. Right, this is so difficult. I know this is so hard for you all in your world. And to have your definitions of good and evil to be rooted in the Bible. I mean, that's even more difficult. Because there are lots of things in our culture that our culture calls good that God calls sin. And this is true of every culture throughout time. But there are lots of things in every culture that the culture calls good that the Bible calls sin. And to call a gap out against it as sin will cost you. I want you to hear this. I know how difficult this is. And, and when you're tempted to call 
to not call sin, sin, when you're tempted to excuse and ignore the darkness in the world around you, God invites you to look at Jesus. To look at him, to look at Jesus whose entire life was calling out sin. Jesus refused to let sin be excused or ignored because his entire mission was the destruction, dismantling, and eradication of sin and its effects. We see this most clearly in his crucifixion, that, that Jesus and his death, you see this, in his death, his death was the death of sin. Death was itself swallowed up in his death. Jesus leaned into sin, pushed into it to the point where he broke it. Sin and death will not win. Jesus has defeated it. His entire mission was to walk into the sin and death of this world and to take it into himself, as well as the wrath it deserved from his Father, so that it might be destroyed in him. So how are we to live in light of this? Well, Jonah shows us two ways to participate in this. The message that we proclaim and the story we inhabit. So first, the message we proclaim. Jonah's sermon is only five words. In Hebrew, it's yet 40 days Nineveh overthrown. But imagine what his presence did in the city. He had this simple, simple sermon, but he had this life-changing story. Here's a man who experienced the judgment of God for his sin. He spent three days at the bottom of the sea in the belly of a fish. And then he experienced the grace of God being raised to new life. Not because of anything he did, but entirely because of God's grace and love. Now for some of you, the guilt you feel as a Christian... The guilt you feel is because you believe that it's your job to convince people their need, of their need of Jesus. You've been taught, whether taught or you just pick this up along the way, that it's your job. Their conversion is somehow your responsibility. Now, I remember in college believing this. Um, I remember my, I think it was the beginning of my junior year. I um, was so fed up with not being able to make sense of my own life as a Christian that I actually stood on the front steps of my fraternity house holding a Bible. And I was like, I remember kind of an out-of-body experience watching myself like open the Bible with my fraternity brothers and try to convince them. And it was like, they were like, what are you doing, John? Why are you doing this? Um, I was trying to convince people that they needed Jesus, but I was totally unwilling to share with them why I needed Jesus. Have you experienced this, either giving it or receiving it? Um, Trying to convince someone why they need Jesus while you're unwilling to share why you need Jesus? Or maybe you've had this, someone trying to convince you that you need Jesus while they themselves are totally unwilling to share with you why they need Jesus. And our neighbors, they perceive this as inauthentic and rude and judgmental, and they're right. But look at Jonah. Look at the story he embodies. His testimony was all about how he needed God's grace. And he was at the bottom of the ocean. And the only thing he could do was cry out to God. And God rescued him. A friend of mine who's a campus minister um, says this. He says, what if evangelism is really more about sharing than convincing? More about being vulnerable with our brokenness than being so quick to point it out in others? When you're willing in humility to first share with someone about your brokenness, your heart idols, your own need for Jesus, they are so much more likely to be drawn into conversation than if you start the conversation asking them why they should be allowed into heaven one day. I hope none of you start conversations that way. Um, We want to give people space to let their guard down for a few minutes, not to provoke them to put it up. We want to give them space to hear about Jesus. In order to proclaim the message of God's grace... God first made Jonah the recipient of his grace. Jonah was qualified to preach God's compassion only after he had received it for himself. And sometimes when we read passages like this, we think that the application is, well, I've got to go and 
put a sign around my neck and walk around Wake Forest yelling, 40 days and the forest shall be overthrown. That's not what this is saying. Um, God is not calling you to do that. You are not Jonah. You have not received a direct revelation from God to do that. But he is calling you to join him in pushing back the darkness and calling out sin and fighting against it. He's calling you to participate in the work that he is doing in the world. God is the one who is pushing back the darkness. So what does it mean to be a Christian who pushes back the darkness? Well, it means for us to live lives together that tell the story of the work God has done in Jesus. This means for most of you that when you graduate, your ministry will be something other than doing full-time Christian work, Christian ministry work. If you become a doctor or a nurse or you work in um, medical professions, your work will be to participate in the healing of Christ, the great physician. And if you become a parent and you raise children, your work will be to participate in the love and the nurture that Jesus provides. And if you practice law or you work with money in markets or you're part of a large corporation, you will participate in the work of bringing Christ's mercy and justice into a world of injustice, corruption, and greed. All of life is participation. And by faith and the power of the Spirit, you get to participate in God's compassion to the world. Hear me on this. Jesus' call to you is to participate with him in the work he is doing to push back the darkness of sin in this world. Yes, it includes raising your voice to speak out against sin. It's so much more than that. So what are Christians for? One well, response to Christ's incarnation, to go into places that need the compassion of God. And in response to Christ's crucifixion, to push back the darkness by word and deed. And finally, in response to Christ's resurrection, to participate in the salvation to the world. Look at our story. What happens in response to Jonah's message? Everyone repents. The king, the people, even the cows. I mean, did y'all see that? The beasts, they put on sackcloth. Like, everyone repents in response. They put on sackcloth, cover their heads in ashes, and repent. This pagan nation who loves evil, they love evil. They hear the word of the Lord, and they repent. And then God relents. God saves them. He delivers them from darkness. He rescues them from death. And what we see here is that Jonah gets to be a participant in God's salvation to the Ninevites. Jonah is not only a recipient of God's compassion. He gets to be an agent of God's compassion. So where is this? Look at verse 4 with me. There's something amazing I want you to see in this verse. Um, Greg Thompson, who was a pastor, helped me to see this. And here's what this says. He says that verse 4 is the key to this book. He says it's the literary skeleton key that unlocks everything. So our question is, how does Jonah participate in God's salvation of the Ninevites? Look at verse 4. He says, he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right, we're going to do a little work to understand this. Please hang with me on this. So what is the central conflict of Jonah? What is the central conflict of Jonah? Is it between God and Nineveh? No. Is it between Jonah and Nineveh? No, the central conflict in the story is between God and Jonah. Everything else is peripheral. Nineveh is just a character. God wants to save Nineveh. Jonah doesn't. And Jonah's mad about that. Even though Jonah is now going to Nineveh, this doesn't mean that the conflict's resolved. And Jonah, willing to go to Nineveh, but he's going to protest sin. He's not going to pursue salvation. Jonah's going to push back the darkness of Nineveh to protest and to call out against its sin. He's hot. He's ready to do it. But he's not thinking about laboring for their salvation. That's the conflict. And the central claim of this book is that God doesn't care what Jonah wants. God wants salvation. 
And his compassion won't be thwarted by any little prophet. His compassion will overflow and it will remove sin and it will bring salvation. We see this in two ways in this verse. Look at this with me. Verse 4. So first, the language of calling out. Language of calling out. This is judgment language. It's used twice in this book for judgment. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. God calling out for judgment. But it shows up three other times in this book. Chapter 1, verse 6. The sailors ask Jonah to call out to God that they might be saved. In chapter 1, verse 14, the sailors themselves call out to God that he might forgive their sins. And in chapter 2, verse 2, Jonah calls out to God from the fish. So there are five uses of this phrase call out in this book. Two are about judgment and three are about salvation. Three are about salvation. The author has been messing with us the whole time and we didn't see it. What's happening now, as the author tells us, is that while Jonah thinks that he's going to call out judgment, God intends to use him to call out salvation. And it, happens with, it happened with the sailors twice, and it happened with himself. So that's the first way we see it. The second way is this word overthrown. There's two ways I want you to see this. First, the image of being overthrown. What does it mean to be overthrown? Well, it means to be thrown over. And in this book, so far, there's only one who's been thrown over. Does anyone know who that is? It's Jonah. Jonah, not Nineveh. Jonah is the one who's thrown over. And Jonah has actually been thrown over. He was thrown over the ship. And being overthrown was not for his judgment. It was for his salvation. So the language of overthrown in Jonah, even though it feels like language about judgment, it's actually language about salvation. Jonah knew that in his own life, and it saved him. So Nineveh will be overthrown and it will save them. So first, the image of overthrown, and second, its actual word. I think this is so cool. Um, in English translations, they get this right. They translate overthrown as overthrown. And the reason the translators do this is because they know that it refers back to the image of the ship. Now, some translations say overturned. Maybe your Bible says this. And the reason is because the word means overturned, which also means turned over. And it also means turned around. So it could mean 40 days and Nineveh will be turned around. Now, so far in this book... There is one person who's been turned around. Who is it? It's Jonah. He was going west to Tarshish, and now he's going east to Nineveh. And was that turning around for his judgment or for his salvation? It was for his salvation. So what you see here is that just as Jonah was overturned, and his overturning was for his salvation, so shall Nineveh be overturned. They're going to be overturned, but not in the way that Jonah thinks. And the author here is preparing us for what's going to happen in chapter 4. And when you think that God is going to use Jonah to throw Nineveh into the sea of God's judgment, God is actually going to use Jonah to throw Nineveh into the waves of his compassion. That's what's happening. And here's why this is so great. Because God's mission in the world is not to bring judgment, but to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. To bring his peace and his joy and his fullness and flourishing and goodness and justice to every corner of his creation. And you cannot stop it. And I want you to tell, I want to tell you um, that as we're talking about this as being participation in this, that um, I see you doing this. I see you participating in this. I see you participating in God's compassion. You telling me stories of holding a a friend's hair um, when she's had too much to drink. You listening to the pain and hurt of your friends. You helping others with their homework. Having a lunch with a new friend and asking them how they're doing and actually listening. Opening a Bible with friends who don't yet know God's compassion. You're praying for your friends, praying with them. Showing up at parties to care for your friends, to help them home. 
giving rides to friends who've had too much to drink, doing laundry for friends who are sick, inviting hurting friends here to hear about God's compassion. This is the work of compassion, and you're doing it. You are participating in God's compassion. And for those of you who hear that and feel guilty because you're not doing it, listen, hear me. You cannot stop God's compassion, and you cannot screw it up. You cannot sabotage the kingdom of God. Some of you are so worried about doing everything perfectly, you're going to screw stuff up. You're going to screw a lot of stuff up. But you cannot sabotage God and his salvation. Some of you feel incredible amounts of shame. right? You, you think of yourself as a disappointment. You're convinced that you've already ruined everything. You think it's up to you to get everything in order so that you don't ruin your own future. So that you make your parents proud. So that you don't disappoint your friends. So that you don't waste your life. Listen, God is not disappointed in you. He doesn't see you as a screw-up. Of course he's disappointed in stuff that you've done, but that's because he loves you. And in Christ, he forgives you. Look at Jonah. God has great plans for Jonah, and he will not let Jonah sabotage his plans. Jonah runs away, God goes and gets him. Jonah hides, God pulls him out. Jonah doesn't believe in God's compassion, so God throws him to the bottom of the sea, pulls him up again so that Jonah would know that God's salvation is real and his compassion isn't just an idea and that he is the God of all grace. Jonah even preaches a bad sermon of condemnation to Nineveh, and God uses it to bring salvation to the entire city. And Jonah points us to Jesus, because Jesus never runs away. He never ran away. He runs to you, into the wreckage and chaos of your life. In your disappointments and failures, Jesus runs to you. Jesus is the embodiment of God's compassion. God wants you to have no doubt about his compassion for you, so he gave you the most precious thing he had. He gave you his own son and gave him up to death on the cross because he loves you so much. So what are Christians for? It's this, to participate in this, to participate in God's compassion to the world as his salvation goes to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God of all compassion. Lord, we thank you for Jonah and um, 